Uh, If you have your Bible, you can begin opening it up or turning it on, as the case may be. Uh, We are headed to the book of Acts this morning in chapter 15, as we continue to make our way through a series that I've entitled, The Power, The Power to Change the World, Acts chapter 15, and we will cover the majority of Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 here in just a moment. Uh, Maybe you have seen the movie Lone Survivor uh, that has come out several years ago. Uh, Lone Survivor is a story of Navy SEALs, the Navy SEALs, uh, at a time when they were uh, in Afghanistan. And in that storyline, they're under significant and constant and heavy fire. Uh, And in in sort of the centerpiece of the movie, um, with each incoming round of fire, there is a conversation that's taking place um, as inevitably, as each round comes in, one of those Navy SEALs gets hit by oncoming fire. And, and here's what that conversation between those men looked like. Um, the fire would come in, one would look at the other and say, are you hit? And the answer would come back, yes. And it would be the follow-up to that first question and answer, are you still in the fight? Yes, I'm still in the fight. The church believers this morning in this world, though Jesus has already won and we look forward to his return, we find ourselves in a battle, one that is ultimately a spiritual battle. And the question for us as well is, are you still in the fight? It is a fight against sin. Jesus gives us a picture of that fight in Matthew chapter 16 when he says specifically that the gates of hell will not prevail against me building my church here on earth. Here in Acts chapter 15, this morning, the church is going to really face their first ever fight. And it is not a fight that they will use swords or knives or guns or weapons of any sort, but it is going to be a fight with and for the truth of the gospel. It will be a fight over the truth of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, received through faith alone. And and the enemy in this moment is not sort of out there. The enemy, we will see, is very much in here, within the the church. Um, it's, It's worth asking from the scripture, you know, what does satanic attack look like in scripture and in the reality of the lives of believers today? Uh, Harry Reader, Pastor Harry Reader puts it this way, Satan has essentially three strategies, intimidation, imitation, and infiltration. And we're really going to see the third of those on display this morning, that there is infiltration taking place where lies are coming against the truth and the power and the goodness of the gospel. Acts chapter 15 is often referred to as really the first general assembly of the New Testament church. And the question that they have to face is, what do you do? It's a question that we have to face. What do you do when false doctrine creeps in? What do you do when the gospel suddenly is being uh, detracted from in the way that people are living it and describing it and teaching it? What do you do when legalism creeps in? Or what do you do when license begins to creep in? When deception replaces doctrine? Where should we compromise and where should we be unwilling to compromise the truth of God's word? And how do us as sinful and broken people within the church, followers of Jesus, how do we sort out this stuff? Uh, Acts chapter 15 gives us a snapshot of what that looks like. 
So let's take a moment now, let's pray and ask for God's blessing over his word, and then we're gonna walk through Acts chapter 15 together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect and without error, and Lord, we submit ourselves to it and to you. We thank you that all good things come from you and from your hand. We thank you that you have made a way to be saved, that it is through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And Lord, we place our, our hope in you. We, we come this morning with nothing but our sin, and we come looking for nothing but your grace, and we're grateful that you have made it available to us. And so it is in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Three ways from Acts chapter 15 that the church must remain steadfast in the gospel of grace. Number one, as we walk through the beginning of this passage, number one is this, add no requirements to the gospel of Jesus. Add no requirements to the gospel of Jesus. And we're gonna see this first in verses one through five of Acts 15, which I wanna read for you now. Hear the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I'll read that again. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 12, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. See here for them and for us, all of humanity stumbles over the gospel message of free grace in Jesus Christ. Our pride inevitably says, I can do this myself, and I don't need God. Uh, we can certainly do this before we are saved, but even as Christians, our hearts inevitably tend to fall back into this sort of self-reliance rather than grace reliance. And the hardest thing in the world for a sinner to do is accept that salvation is by grace and that it is a free offering from God and from God alone to admit I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I can't do life without God. We all stumble over that. Here, it is a group that is infiltrating the church who are known throughout the New Testament as a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. And this really is the very first great controversy and great heresy within the church, and it happens right away. These guys did not overtly deny salvation by grace, but you can see where they are headed. They simply slip in, salvation is grace plus. Salvation is grace plus. In this case, they add circumcision. Now, for all the details on what circumcision is, go ask your dad after the service. But for now, let us say it was in the Old Testament, the outward sign and seal of being a part of God's covenant community. And it was applied to all of the males in Israel, normally, eight days after you were born. Jesus himself was circumcised eight days after his birth. It was a good gift from God, but as in most areas of sin, we take God's good gift and we twist it. 
And that's what's taking place here. The problem is stated twice in Acts 15 so that we are clear in verse one and verse five, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And then verse five, it is necessary for them, the Gentiles, to be circumcised. Again, all of us have this sinful tendency in our own heart to add to the gospel our own pet list of, well, if you really wanna be a Christian, you also need to do this. But when you start adding that language to salvation or to being a part of the church, you are well outside of what scripture has taught us. And what we're gonna see here is it's not just the Judaizers that are infiltrating. Here, it is sneaking back into the heart of some of the apostles. Paul gives us further explanation in his letter to the church at Galatia, named Galatians, which was written just prior to this, the Jerusalem assembly, uh, which takes place, we know, uh, in 49 AD. So if you have your Bible, flip two books to the right from Acts, Romans, Galatians. Let's look at Galatians chapter two. We're gonna kind of bounce between both of these texts this morning as they're really speaking to the exact same problem and the same moment. First of all, in Galatians 2, uh, verse 4 and 5, Paul describes the Judaizers, and he doesn't use nice words. He says, they are false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom in Christ and bring us into slavery. So Paul is not unclear about the, the level of the problem. But what I want to read together is verses 11 through 14, where we see the apostles slip into this sin, and Paul is faced with the task of addressing it. Verse 11, but when Cephas, that's Peter, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Same guys, Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This should humble all of us because here we see that the apostles were wrong. Uh, There is no believer, there is no pastor, no elder, no leader within the church who is above making mistakes and falling back into sin. By the way, this is another reason why we know that what the Bible tells us is true, because it does not candy coat or hide the mistakes of believers and even leaders within the church. And to be clear, this is a huge mistake that Peter is making. Uh, In verse 9 and 13 of Galatians 2, we are told that specifically Peter, James, John and Barnabas were in the wrong because they have slipped into this Judaizer way of thinking. Again, believers still sin. Pastors, elders, leaders still sin, and we all still need God's grace and truth every single day in our lives. The sin here is compromising the truth in order to gain acceptance and maybe a little bit of popularity, even though it was going to hurt Gentile believers, they were willing to mess with the truth of the gospel here, and that is sin. Understand, some things are worth fighting for. The Bible here, back in Acts chapter 15, calls it no small dissension and debate. So we know from history what happened is Paul walked up on stage to Peter and slapped him across the face at the Jewish Oscars that very morning. 
What we do know from the scripture here is that they gather the elders and the apostles together to represent the church and to come to a conclusion on this matter. I think as Christians today, we are utterly terrified to enter into respectful theological discussion and even debate. We're terrified that somebody might be offended or hurt, and we should have concern. But look at what the gospel here is teaching us. If the choice is between preserving the truth of the gospel and compromising so we can have sort of a surfacey fake harmony, then our choice is the truth of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 2.5, we did not yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, Peter adds in his own book an incredibly important word when he says when you're sharing the gospel to do it with gentleness and respect. Inevitably, we tend towards one or the other. We usually will either be, oh, I'm all about telling the truth, and we totally blow it on the gentleness and respect. Or we are so focused on gentleness and respect that we are unwilling to actually bring up the truth of the gospel, and that person never hears. Uh, R. Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary on this passage, says this, and this is why it's so important. He says, history and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means or the way of salvation. If the apostles had capitulated, there would soon have been a Christian doctrine of salvation by circumcision. Similarly for us today, uh, to teach or, or to even suggest, to push people towards the idea that salvation can be accomplished through baptism, that salvation can be accomplished through good works, that salvation can be accomplished through any of the seven Catholic sacraments, that salvation can be accomplished through observing Old Testament laws or Old Testament festivals, or that salvation can be accomplished by experiencing some sort of charismatic uh, experience are all heresy and are all a false gospel. But we see here that God blesses Paul's fight because it is his fight for the gospel of grace. And what we're going to see here next is that these apostles who were in sin absolutely begin to repent of their sin and renew their commitment to the gospel. And so we are reminded to fight for the gospel by adding no requirement to the gospel. Number two is this, and we'll see this in the second portion of our passage. Number two, hold fast to the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. What we're gonna see here is they go down a deeper level of explaining fully what they mean by those words so that they are clear because this is so important. Uh, look at verses six through 12 with me now. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. That is between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, no distinction from God, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Key verse, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will, Jews and Gentiles saved by grace. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. 
And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter has remembered what God has done. The Holy Spirit has worked in his heart and life, and he has returned to the reality and the beauty of the gospel. And he gives evidence here saying that saving faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit has already been received by Gentile believers just like Jewish believers. He adds, God knows the heart. He said, God has made no distinction between us. And he makes a great point when he says that the Jews had failed to keep the law of Moses. So how on earth would we expect Gentiles to? In other words, if Jews or Gentiles are going to be saved, it is not going to be by keeping the law perfectly. It is going to be by grace alone. No one can keep the law, and so we are all saved by grace. At our church, we say that we have a series of values. We have six values that among the multitude of things that we ought to focus in on a church, we say number one is this, proclaiming grace. Proclaiming grace. And, and the passage that I usually use to sort of illustrate that reality comes also from Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he teaches us a powerful word on this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he explains the gospel, but then he makes it personal. So in verses three and four of of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the gospel is this, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. A simple, beautiful explanation of the good news of the gospel. But then in verse 9 and 10, he makes it personal, which I think is incredibly important for us. Look at verse 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul speaking, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. This is how we live out the gospel before the world, in humility and in grace. Because if hypocrisy within the church among believers obviously pushes people further away from the church, pushes them further away from Christ ultimately, then walking in humility and preaching the gospel of grace to ourselves each day And preaching the gospel of grace to others will draw them in. Hypocrisy pushes away. Humility and grace draws people back to the truth. And Paul goes a little deeper. Again, we're going back to Galatians chapter 2 now. This is verses 14 through 16 when he gives us sort of the raw materials of the gospel. So this is right after he has confronted Peter's hypocrisy. And he says this, verse 15 and 16, sorry. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He basically says the exact same thing three times in a row just to drive it home to make sure that we get what's going on. When he uses this word justification, this is courtroom language. Do you stand guilty or not guilty? Do you stand justified or unjustified? And the reality that he is teaching us is that you and I and every single person on the planet stand guilty before a holy and a righteous God who has the right, the justice, and the responsibility to punish sin, to judge sin. All of humanity outside of Christ stands guilty and deserves death for our sin. 
But the reality of the gospel is that Jesus stepped into that courtroom and said, I will take the punishment for anyone who will put their faith and trust in me. I will take the punishment for their sins. They committed the sin, I'll take the punishment. And a trade or an exchange was offered by Jesus in that moment. Well, what about me? Why can't I do that? I could just step in and say, well, you know, I know Missy's really messed up, but listen, punish me instead. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't work because Jesus is the only one who can honestly say, I've never broken God's law. I've never sinned. I've never done anything wrong. And so a holy and perfect sacrifice was required to pay the penalty for our sins. So that rather than us doing what we tend to do, which is sort of justify ourselves by legalism or the opposite, sort of hiding our sin, the only way to be saved is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, in his grace alone, received by faith alone. God's offer is free grace but you must ask for it. You must cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me, a sinner. I need you to do for me what I could never do myself, and he will answer. And if you're a believer this morning, I wanna point out further that, that following Christ, if I can use this metaphor, following Christ is a path. And there's a ditch on each side, okay? On the one side, the ditch would be called legalism. And that ditch is filled with man-eating piranhas, and it will eat you alive when you walk into legalism. But on the other side is another ditch called license. And license is, I've got God's grace. I can do what I want. Don't talk to me about doing the right thing. I'm going to live my life my way. And in that ditch is Jaws and every great white shark and even Bruce from, uh, from Finding Nemo. They're all in there, and they will eat you alive. This is important for us because which way at the moment does our culture tend to tilt, legalism or license? Oh, very good. It is not always that way. There are cultures that tend toward legalism and those that tend toward license. But certainly in our culture at the moment, we tend towards license and they are both a huge mistake because license says, I can do what I want. Grace does not mean denying our sin. Grace does not mean rejecting God's law. Rather, grace means acknowledging the seriousness of my sin and that the only solution is in Jesus. Paul anticipated this argument. Paul anticipated that all of us, himself included, would tend towards that like, well, I've got grace. I'm gonna do what I want. And he says this to address that specific question in Romans chapter six, verses one through four. What shall we say then, says Paul? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. What's the answer in verse two? By no means. Uh, No, (laughs) no, we should not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's often said we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. See, the reality of experiencing God's free grace in my life is that grace drives me to obedience. When I have been freed from my sin and made able now to obey the Lord, it makes me want to honor God's law. Grace, his freely given grace, makes me want to walk in the light. 
It makes me want to repent of my sin. It makes me want to be at war with my sin daily. It makes me want to speak the truth in love. And so when Peter makes this incredibly important point about grace through faith, uh, it says in verse 12 that the assembly fell silent. I think up to this moment, the Judaizers were carrying the room. They were carrying the church culture, especially in Jerusalem. But when the reality of the gospel and God's word was put on display fully again, everybody closed their mouths. They stopped listening to the cultural drip and they listened to God's word and they were drawn back to the heart of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And so must we. Third and finally in this passage, verses 13 through 29 kind of give us the, the practical, like, here and now, how do we do this here on earth? Submit to Christ, number three, submit to Christ the King and love his church. Capital C, Christ, capital K, King, capital C, Church, meaning the global church of all believers and yet expressed by local churches like New City Church here in Palm Bay, Florida. Submit to Christ the King and love his church. Listen to this longer passage. It's basically going to explain what happened, and then it's going to explain a letter that was written that summarized what happened. So again, we want to make it super clear. So Luke gives it to us twice. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, again, this is now the Jewish name of Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell." The apostles here understood the reality of sinful people here on earth. And here it is. People err or make mistakes. Church councils, church assemblies err. They make mistakes. 
God and his word do not. The reformers in the 16th century understood this reality in a fresh, important way. And this is why sort of the summarized teachings of that era was this, the five solas of the Reformation. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. God's glory alone. So for example, the Pope speaking ex cathedra, which translated means from his throne, The Pope speaking from his throne as if he is speaking inerrantly with the authority of Scripture is not a thing. Not a thing. He can't do it. I can't do it. If anybody tells you that what they are saying is on level with Scripture, they are wrong. Every council, every creed, every confession, every catechism, every book, every commentary, every theological paper is always under the scripture. And it is worthless if it is not in submission to the scripture. Conversely, letters, creeds, confessions, catechisms, etc. are valuable when they have their proper place in submission under the scripture. Here we have James, and this is the half-brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, we saw several weeks ago, Uh, was killed for his faith. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader, lead elder of the Jerusalem church, and here he essentially serves as the first moderator of the first general assembly of the church. And James explicitly brings in here the authority of Scripture by quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. There are a multitude of places that he could have quoted from the Old Testament, and probably they opened up their Old Testament Bible and they scoured it as they wrestled through these questions. Certainly that is our task as well. But by quoting Amos 9 and 12, we see a promise in the Old Testament that Jews and Gentiles would have the same Messiah, that they would be saved, and we see nothing about Gentiles being required to become Jewish or to be specifically circumcised. And so the application, the outflow of that in verse 19 and 20 here in Acts 15 is James essentially gives us these two basic applications, both because we are under grace rather than under the law. It says, because we are under grace, we should not make non-biblical requirements of others. In other words, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised to be saved or to join the church. And secondly, he's saying, because we are under grace, we will gladly restrict our own freedom for the sake of other people's conscience, not out of sin, but to honor those among us who have higher or lower standards. And so Paul picks up that same idea and really gives it clarity in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says this, for though I am free from all, I have grace, I've experienced grace, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He goes on to say that When I'm around the Jews, I honor what the Jews do. When I'm around the Gentiles, I honor what the Gentiles do. Very practically, if I have a brother who is uncomfortable being around alcohol, then I don't bring alcohol over to his house. If I have a brother who enjoys having an alcoholic beverage, then I might bring alcohol with me over to his house. It's not a matter of being saved or unsaved. It's a matter of willingly, joyfully saying that I will give up my freedoms in order to honor, serve, and care for those among us. In the end of Acts 15, in this council, look what God does, though. Look what God has done. First of all, we see that the gospel of grace alone through faith alone was reaffirmed. 
Jesus has already stated it clearly. It's not as if it changed, but they were able to, despite someone bringing in corruption, they were able to go, yes, what Jesus said was and is true. And you see that the unity of the church was still maintained and protected, even though they had to deal with a controversy. Further, you see that evangelism to Jews and Gentiles continues. It actually grows. There there is more evangelism. There are more missions trips to come. There are more churches planted rather than it being hindered by a false gospel. And may it be the same for us here at New City and Christ Church here on earth in 2022. I want to give you just a couple of closing applications, specifically though, thinking about church leadership or church government that we see that kind of tease out here in Acts 15 and the New Testament uh, that I think are helpful for us. Uh, Let me restate, councils, assemblies, when the elders of your church get together, they make mistakes. Only the word of God is flawless and inerrant. And yet, God in his goodness has ordained that men called elders lead the church. And God is not surprised when they make mistakes. Hebrews 13, 17 on this topic in the New Testament says this, gives us this little snapshot. He's speaking to the church and he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. We all love the word submit, but there it is. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls because they're perfect and never make mistakes. No, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, meaning The Lord already knows they're going to make mistakes, but they are under the same grace that you and I are under. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Don't make the life of your pastor or elder miserable, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it uses the word submit, even though elders are sinners too. And again, this is because every member of the church, pastor, elder, regular member, we're all sinners saved by grace. We are all sinners saved by grace. And here's how this works. And Christ is the head, the king of his church. If any pastor, any elder, any leader says, I'm the head, they are a liar. I am not the head of the church. Christ is the king and head of the church. And he rules the church further through his written word. The 66 books of the Old and New Testament His rule is mediated through men called elders, average, everyday people like you and me, not superheroes. Um, The word elder in the Bible is the word presbyteros. Learning Greek today. Presbyteros. Does that sound like anything you know? Presbyteros, from which we get our English word Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Elders are the human leaders of the church. They are established and explained in at least four places in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 5, 1 Peter 5 most particularly, but then additional details in Titus 1 and 1 Corinthians 11. Now to go back here though to Acts 15, notice that even in the earliest days of the church, elders already exist. They are not planting churches without elders. Notice too, the number of apostles is not increasing. There will be no extra apostles. The number of churches is growing. The number of elders is multiplying. But the number of apostles does not change because there are no new apostles after the 12 that we see here in the New Testament. 
Notice also that there are a plurality of elders gathered, meaning not just one guy. There must be a collection of elders gathered. Every church that we see established, planted in the New Testament has a plurality of elders, more than one, at least two. 10 is great, 20 is great, but not one. There is no such thing as a church with one elder. You may use the word elder or pastor or shepherd interchangeably. There is no such thing. So we at New City Church, we are a church plant. I am your church planting pastor or elder. If you didn't know that, welcome. We are New City Church. We are a church plant. I cannot and I will not be on my own. And so we have been sent by Covenant Church. Covenant Presbyterian Church, 15 minutes up the road, is our mother or sending church. And there, elders, along with me, are helping to care for, lead, and love, and shepherd this church until that season in which the Lord raises up additional elders here in our own local church. And that's how we move from being a baby church to being an adult, mature church. We are finishing here this summer and this fall, year three, of being a church plant. And, and typically in our world, that's about the, the time frame where we begin to establish elders here in our local church. Um, when I come back from sabbatical here and we begin our new ministry year in the fall, that will be my primary next focus in growing our church is the training and establishing of elders. Uh, and I would ask you to begin praying now. Pray for the Lord to lead and to guide that he would call clearly those men that would come and be a part of leading, shepherding, caring for this church, because guess what? They're all sinners just like me. And God in his grace has called us to be together as a church family. Amen? So Acts 15, we get these three things. Add no requirements to the gospel of Jesus. Hold fast to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith and submit to Christ the King and love his church. Let's pray together.